Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're talking about loneliness, which has just been declared a public health epidemic in the United States. According to a new advisory from the U.S. Surgeon General, the health risks associated with loneliness and a lack of social connection are as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and the associated cost to the healthcare system runs into billions of dollars a year. It's a problem that the World Health Organization says affects up to one in three elderly people in some countries and can have a serious impact on people's physical and mental health, their quality of life and longevity. Is this epidemic of loneliness getting worse? Is it something that people aren't paying enough attention to? After 9.45, we'll get reaction to a study that shows that only one in eight people are willing to get COVID booster jabs. So let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us on backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line clinical psychologist Dr. Amos Chung who is also the Vice President of the Hong Kong Psychological Society. And in a moment, we will also be joined by Professor Jean Wu, Director of the Chinese University's Jockey Club Institute of Aging. Good morning, Dr. Cheng. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, first of all, Dr. Cheng, what is loneliness? I mean, how do we define it? Well, technically, uh, we can define loneliness as uh, a feeling uh, of uh, not just being alone, but not being able to get or connect to a rewarding social connections and relationships. So technically, loneliness is not always the same as being alone, but more is a description of feeling we get when we need it, a rewarding social connections. Uh, we wanted to have that in the relationship, and however, we can't get it. Yeah, so one of the major findings of this uh, U.S. study is the increase in social um, isolation of among younger people, among, among teenagers, about among people in their 20s. And in their discussion, they felt that social media has something to do with this. What are your thoughts? Well, I guess the problem has many faults. Uh, first, we have just been coming out from this uh, COVID pandemic that lasted for more than three years, where, it, where we promote uh, social distancing, where we promote uh, uh, studying from home, online learning, working from home, things like that. These have extraordinary significant impact on our daily living, uh, on our daily schedules and routines. Uh, whereas we also rely on more online platforms for just connections. And these online platforms, they are not as interactive as before. And it's definitely not as interactive uh, in terms of social connections than real life situations. Just think about it. When we go through social medias on, on these online applications. We post things, we might uh, uh, give a like, we might uh, 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 say something or, or written something on the comments, and then we usually don't get immediate replies, but have to wait for others. And this created a lot of insecurity. Right, so, so not enough talking to each other then? Yep, and it's not just not enough talking, but not enough interactive uh, 
talking. Right. And this uh, new advisory we were talking about uh, from the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General, um, it, it said that the health risks associated with loneliness uh, and a lack of connection are as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. How does a psychological issue like a loneliness affect the, the, uh, the body? Well, uh, it's two ways. It's not one way, but two ways. First, uh, loneliness does have an impact on uh, mental health. It causes a significant uh, increase in the chances of uh, depression, uh, anxiety, and in return, anxiety and depression. These moods also created and fueled uh, our tendencies to be feeling more lonely. So it's a two-way process. And the other thing is that we know that depressed people, uh, anxious people, they tended to have an increased uh, chances and probabilities in also having various forms of uh, physical problems uh, because some of them might feel lonely and depressed to the extent that uh, they might not want to move, they have a, a, a decreased level of energy, they have a lower uh, uh, exercise and activity, uh, which we know that has an impact on our physical health as well. Right. And uh, when, we, when we talk about, I mean, loneliness, we're talking about it as a, as a psychological condition, as a problem. But, uh, I mean, everyone can feel lonely. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it can be like a brief emotional state, right? But uh, is, the, is it uh, a problem when it actually continues and persists and uh, it, it just doesn't end for some people? Uh, feeling alone or when we feel that we need this alone time is very different from this sense of loneliness, as if this sense of loneliness is more like a description of, I wanted to connect with people, I wanted to be understood by others, and yet there aren't anyone that can connect or that can understand me. So this is two different things. And if it's just a brief state of a sense of loneliness, where it can pass within a few hours or even one or two days, we can recover and recuperate. However, if it's like an extended form of loneliness, then it becomes an issue where this extended form of loneliness can lead to a sense of depressed state where it can extend for more than one or two weeks, which would become an issue and forming the precursors of depression. So what is your best advice to young people who may feel that way other than taking medicine? Well, I guess one of the important uh, uh, importance that we need to take note is that uh, over the past three years, the world and the pandemic has shaped a new normal. And this new normal has a significant impact on our social and also our mental health. And thus, when we are now coming back to this old normal, we can readjust or we need to consciously readjust the routine back into the original state where we need to go out, where we have to find our friends together to, 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 to have dinner or lunch or tea, where we hang out with our friends, uh, we have more parties, maybe more, more, more activities together rather than just 
constantly relying on the online platforms, which on some aspects can be rewarding because you didn't need to be that actful. But in fact, that actfulness is also an aspect that can create a sense of satisfaction and reward. All right. Uh, we're also uh, now joined uh, on the program by Professor Jean Wu, Director of the Chinese University's Jockey Club Institute of Aging. And good morning, Professor Wu. Oh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, uh, in the past uh, 10 minutes or so, we talked about uh, loneliness and uh, how it affects young people. But uh, what are you saying, Professor Wu? I mean, in my introduction, it says uh, the World Health Organization um, it says loneliness affects up to one in three elderly people in some places. Um, do you think it's a serious problem among um, elderly people in Hong Kong? Well, I mean, in general, social isolation and loneliness affect everybody. But uh, if we're discussing about older people, um, uh, I think it, it is quite a big problem because we've done some focus group uh, interviews with older people, and basically, they increasingly there is a, a well, there's a relationship you, you can see with lower socioeconomic position and social isolation itself, and then also the feeling of loneliness, which I think the previous speaker have pointed out is slightly different. Um, they increasingly feel lonely because they feel marginalized. There's a growing distance between them and society. And so, so in a way, their, their identity seems to be disintegrating as part of society. And that appears to be a, a, an important source of their, their feeling of loneliness. But I think, in general, in general, um, loneliness and social isolation are really medical issues, not just psychological issues. It's not just something you think, oh well, it's psychological, it's mental health. It's not mental health, because um, there are lots of evidence to show that it affects uh, many chronic diseases as a risk factor for. Um, uh, at death from cardiovascular disease, uh, stroke, other than, you know, the psychiatric uh, illness like anxiety, depression, increased risk of dementia, infectious diseases, reduce your immunity to diseases, low functional status, etc. Um, also use of health services. So this is quite under-recognized. In fact, you could argue that it is really a public health problem. And Hong Kong society has put the emphasis on diseases. Um, so if you look at the COVID pandemic, how we handled it, it certainly increased social isolation and loneliness, um, which is so, so in a way, we just put the emphasis on just containing the bug and killing it uh, and, and ignoring it. And, and so everything is towards, you know, preserving the hospital authority, hospitals functioning. But when, in fact, some of the policies are definitely acting in the other direction. And it is a pity that Hong Kong had not taken this, the whole picture into account. And, I mean, there's some evidence to show that, that uh, death outside of hospital from these causes actually increase. So, uh, I mean, yeah outside hospitals compared to previous where you know you have in hospital mortality but the hospital admission is reduced and so death outside hospitals increase and so so this this is like a, a worldwide uh, problem which have been talked about since 2000 
and various organizations have said that this is a public health issue and we should do something about it. But I think, um, I think locally the awareness is not there and particularly the pandemic highlights it and I hope that post-pandemic our policy should change. Uh, how, what changes would you like to see? Well, um, so first of all, if there were another pandemic, the, um, your policies, whatever policies you have, should not increase social isolation and loneliness. And, and secondly, if we were to say health, uh, when, we talk, when we treat people with their diseases, we need to take into account um, this dimension. And so the community could provide lots of support in the, the NGO centers, the um, district health centers. So we, we incorporate social isolation and loneliness into part of your management of chronic conditions. And um, um, this is just, Hong Kong has the infrastructure to do that. So we just need to integrate all various services in a better way. Uh, and then we have these volunteers, you know, the, 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 I see that the government is starting these uh, 18 district volunteer groups. And the underlying reason is just that the government has, has a, a kind of army to, to dish out pandemic, uh, <laughs> uh, well, they, they use it in the pandemic because they can give out these masks and so on. But it, it could do much more than that. To, to reach out to people who are alone, yeah, is yeah, that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very vicious cycle, though, isn't it? Um, the, when people are disabled, uh, suppose they had a stroke or they have dementia, then they're less able to socially interact. They physically can't get there, right? And, and, yeah. the, and it just spirals down. And, and the same thing with, with the pandemic measures. If you get people in a group, like even in a something like a, a church group, for example, the the virus get passed on from one to the other. Even if it's a volunteer visiting um, an old person living on their own, there is still that risk. So, what do you? How do we uh, manage that? Well, there the, the, there is a uh, another group um, that uh, where, where policy could immediately change, and that is we support many. Uh, vulnerable people in community uh, centers, various various kind of centers, like whether they have disability or dementia, dementia care, daycare, um, and also home visits to support them uh, for uh, you know drug administration or delivering food and so on. Now during the pandemic, the the uh, there was no policy to say that. These are essential services, just like hospitals and outpatients. Uh, as for, for the UK, they were essential services. So you, you, you take your PPE and you continue the services. Uh, Hong Kong did not articulate that and just basically left it to the uh, organization providing these services, largely the NGOs, and said, well, um, you can do what, whatever you feel like. And, and then, of course, a lot of them just stop the services because they don't want to be sued. Right, if, if um, one of their clients or their staff uh, contracted COVID, I mean that is the default mode. Um, but some, it depends. Some organisation continue, and they were busier than ever to show that this is very much needed. Um, so, for example, if you provide support with telephone 
service like the Senior Citizen Home Association, they were kind of flooded with calls. So I think the, the government can just give a guideline to say, yeah, these are essential services, and then they, they will um, continue providing without worrying of, of you know, the legal implications. Uh, I mean, so, so that, that is a simple thing that, that uh, the government can do with respect to policy. So the, it, it, there's been a lot of studies that show that during the pandemic, when these services were withdrawn, it resulted in deterioration of the, the person being supported in their cognitive and physical function, as well as tremendously increased care or stress. And we need to care about that. So, you know, this is a public health issue because it's so prevalent. All right. So let's go to uh, Dr. Chung. Dr. Chung? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what do you think of uh, what uh, Professor Wu is saying? She's saying uh, that the, there's not enough awareness, not enough uh, attention uh, placed on the issue of loneliness and that it, it should be uh, considered a public health issue. Yes, indeed, it, it should be considered as a public health issue. Uh, as I remembered back in the, uh, uh, the pandemic, I've also emphasized in some of the media platforms that, well, apart from uh, uh, the social isolation that we need to impose because of uh, uh, public health and because of infection control, we also have to be aware of the implications of these policies, because otherwise we might be actually uh, just trying to cope with one issue with one policy, and yet it has created another impact, unforeseen or unrecognized, which now we started to recognize and becoming aware of, because we don't want to just treat or cure one issue and then induce another illness. That's one thing. But the other thing is that when we work on loneliness, sometimes we have the idea that, well, uh, just going out, hanging with friends, surrounding with people, that is enough. Yes, for some people, these interactions, it's already more than adequate. Sometimes, some people, even when we are feeling surrounded by friends, by people around us, we still feel that loneliness. It's, sometimes it's more than just people. Sometimes it's just more than the environment, but more of a psychological connectedness. So how do, you, psycho- how do you counter that? And this psychological connectedness is about also a promotion of how to listen how to understand uh, with others, how to connect with others, but not just by, 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 uh, in, by just saying that, well, you, 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 you just socialize with your friends now. Because sometimes disconnectedness can be important, especially in the family context. So what it means is in terms of policies, we also have to look into family policies. How we can we enforce and encourage and facilitate the functions that the family can bring and support to individuals uh, uh, in the society. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the worst feeling, isn't it, when the person feels lonely in a crowd? That they're isolated. In in clinical psychology, what kind of help do you offer people in that situation? Well, we we try to look into the matter uh, from various perspectives, both from a behavioural point of view, from the construction of the environment, 
But also, we have to also learn is that we can be a good partner for ourselves as well. So it's not just we need to look outside to seek people to understand us, to connect with us, but maybe the most available person is ourselves. So learning to be connected with our internal conditions, uh, our internal voice, at times can also alleviate this issue. Um, Professor Wu, you talked earlier about how loneliness is really a public health issue. Now, much of the pandemic policies, as we talked about a minute ago, um, were based on the argument that, well, the healthcare system can't support um, the virus just spreading around. Um, but the health, the cost to healthcare for diseases such as stroke and dementia as a result of loneliness may be even higher, right? Can you talk a little bit about that in, in terms yeah. of cost to the healthcare system? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I, I think. Um People have been looking at this issue for, for many years now, and I, I'm sure um, one can uh, Google papers that, that can give you an estimate. But, the, but your main point is, is very important, you see. Whatever we do, there are good things and bad things about it. And when we make, um, such, a, when we make such uh, policies that, uh, that affect that has such wide-reaching effects, like in the past three years, we really have to be very careful to calculate um, all, all the costs and, and benefits. And um, we have not done that. Of course, I haven't really mentioned the, the impact of, on the economy and how that affects people. <laughs> but um, but we, we don't have a holistic approach on health. Now, I think currently, you see, we, we're talking about loneliness and social isolation as though, uh, I, I think to many people, this is just a mental health thing. You know, it's the psychologist, the psychiatrist. But how many people would really think, you know, if you engage in health, and particularly in health policy, what is health? I mean, health is very holistic. It's not just the hospital authorities' point of view. What about community health? We, we don't have much primary care, and it's very fragmented. Uh, but to a person, if we're talking about person, focusing on the person, your health is very much dependent on your brain reaction, the brain interface of your environment, whether it's physical or social. Um, so, you know, a simple ex example, if, if your blood pressure goes up and you have a stroke, and what makes your blood pressure goes up? Well, you, you quarrel with somebody or something else happened or, you know, it, it's very hot or whatever. Uh, so it, 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 you cannot disentangle these what people call social determinants from health. They're very, very important. If you're just focusing on giving people drugs, you never get anywhere. And this is particularly relevant for aging populations. And right now it seems to me that when you talk about health, it's all about the hospital authority being over flooded with patients, chronic disease and disaster because there's so many old people and you can't discharge them from the hospital. But then what happens in the community? We can do much more. Um, and some of the NGOs are doing really great work, but it's, it's not part of government policy explicitly and so you have some enlightened people doing various things that are helpful for a particular community and I think we ought to rebalance the, the, the whole thing about health you know the understanding of what health is it's not just the 
presence of diabetes and <clears throat> and heart disease and things like that. When you when you say some enlightened people doing things for the community, what are you thinking about? Um, well, uh, for, for example, um, if you were talking about um, well loneliness, how people feel that they're not part of society, uh, or if you talk about um, social isolation, nobody visiting, nobody helping. All right, uh, um, Professor Wu, I'm going to have to stop you there for a moment. Hold that thought. Um, we have to take a quick break for the news and uh, let's continue our discussion afterwards uh, when we will be joined by Terry Lum, University of Hong Kong Professor of Social Work and Social Administration. Now, if you're tuning in and you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RCHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rchk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather. Sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 27 degrees. Wind moderate to fresh easterlies. Right now it's 24 degrees. Relative humidity, 68%. It's now 9.30. With a new summary, here's Andrew Shirovsky. The hospital authorities says it plans to offer more services remotely as patients are increasingly open to so-called telehealth consultations, first offered during the pandemic. The authority says it gave more than 200,000 remote consultations in the past year and will expand such services to cover more patients, including those aged under 18. Supporters of the former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan have called for nationwide protests following his arrest on corruption charges. His party has urged people to gather at the judicial complex in Islamabad. And the United States has announced a new package of security assistance for Ukraine worth up to 1.2 billion U.S. dollars. It'll be used to bolster Ukraine's air defenses, including ammunition to counter drone attacks, as well as to provide artillery rounds, training, and access to commercial satellite images. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. It's time to carry out repair works for aging buildings. Operation Building Bright 2.0 offers financial assistance of up to $50,000 to owner-occupiers. The Fire Safety Improvement Work Subsidy Scheme also offers financial assistance up to 60% of construction and consultant fees to owners' corporations. Applications have started. Please submit applications online, by mail, or in person from now till the September 30th closing date. Call 3188-1188 for details. There are reasons to be happy everywhere you go in Hong Kong. Enjoy local and global cuisines and have fun along the way. Get immersed in the world of light, shows and carnivals. Joyful moments for all. Want to explore special bazaars? They are just around the corner. Pop culture? Victoria Harbour is our stage. Happiness is all around you. Come and join us. Taste the joy, share the fun. Happy Hong Kong. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is clinical psychologist Dr. Amos Chung, who is also the vice president of the Hong Kong Psychological Society. And also with us is Jean Wu, the director of the Chinese University's Jockey Club Institute of Aging. And also joining us now is Terry Lam, a University of Hong Kong professor of social work and social administration. He's also an advisor to the government on long-term care. And uh, before we get to you, uh, Professor Lam, we were speaking uh, 
um, to uh, Professor Wu earlier, and uh, we'll just let her finish first. Yeah, so Professor Wu, you were, you were talking about how there needs to be a holistic, a more holistic approach to public health care in Hong Kong, and you were saying that there are certain enlightened groups that provide certain services. What are these services that we're thinking of? Yeah, so um, the, um, uh, uh, Terry has joined at a very uh, timely moment. He can continue the conversation. <laughs> Basically, I, uh, the, uh, for the past six years, there's been an age-friendly city initiative where all 18 districts have been involved in four universities to involve, uh, to work with the NGOs, district level, local communities. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we promoted were to build up neighborhood social cohesion and build up sense of community and so on. And, and these have been, uh, during that process, have been shown to be related to good health outcomes. And so, I mean, I, I think um, uh, maybe Terry can continue uh, elaborating on this. Uh, yeah, Terry Lum, what are your thoughts? No, I think what, what Jean said is absolutely correct. Actually, we have... Um, very good infrastructure in Hong Kong. Uh, for example, the district-based elderly center, we have more than 200 of them in all the districts in Hong Kong. And then, um, so the government and the jockey club also have initiative uh, to help connecting older people together. So the problem is um, how can we develop a more holistic approach to motivate, uh, to, to mobilize all those resources to really, you know, um, help to, you know, um, deal with the loneliness issues or challenges among older people. So yeah. the resources are there, but the challenges is we don't have a more coherent approach to mobilize those resources in a useful way. Um, you know, I looked at uh, one paper. Uh, this was published in 2021, and it's a joint study between Hong Kong U and the uh, Tonghua College School of Nursing. And they looked at the level of loneliness in different mm -hmm. districts. The conclusion was the 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 worst scenario were in places like Central uh, mm -hmm. and 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 Wan Chai, where they're largely commercial, and the best places are Sha Tin, um, mm -hmm. and because. Uh, and, and similar areas like that where it's largely residential because mm -hmm. they have the facilities to support the community. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on, you know, the variation between different districts? Yes, you know, put it this way, Hong Kong's older person has a very interesting um, demographic kind of uh, background. For example, about 30 to 40% 40, 40 of them uh, do not have any education because of the you know, uh, economic and political environment when they grew up. And then we have a larger group, about 60% of them has some um, education. So um, so if you look at um, the loneliness issue in Hong Kong, we cannot just see Hong Kong older person as a, a kind of a very unified block. So you, we need to understand their diversity. So um, people, for example, in, in Central, in Wanjai, they are more commercial district. But on the other hand, they are all kind of uh, 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 socioeconomic speaking, they are a little bit better off. So most of them, they are depending on their own network. But in residential area like Satin Taipo, uh, actually there are larger percentage of older people living in public housing. And we have much better social services in uh, related to um, public housing or connected to public housing. So um, people in those residential, uh, older people in those residential area, they are more connected to, for example, district uh, uh, elderly center, which is the hub 
for lots of social activities. But uh, people in Central, in Wanjai, they are not connected to those hubs. So I think this uh, kind of illustrates that geographic um, disparity or different differences in social services as well as in uh, loneliness uh, challenges. Right. I just want to go back to Dr. Cheng for a moment. Dr. Cheng? Yep. Uh, Professor Lum here, you just uh, told us that uh, around 30 to 40 percent of elderly people, they're not educated and uh, 60 percent uh, have some education. So um, how, I mean, do I mean, how or, or when do they know um, they need they need help if they're feel, feeling uh, lonely? I guess the presentations of uh, of the, the, the psychological needs or uh, varies as well. Uh, in terms of education uh, backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, we know that uh, there might be a higher tendency for the uh, uh, lower socioeconomic background people. They might have, or they initially might have presented their problems uh, with more physiological complaints, whereas uh, uh, higher educated uh, socioeconomic background people, they tended to be more able to conceptualize and express the uh, psychological distress in more uh, uh, abstract or more verbal format that is more psychological in nature. But no matter what, we have to be sensitive to the presentations of these problems and not just misjudge them as a physical problem or as just a psychological problem, because we know that, well, our physiology and our psychology, it's interconnected and it has an effect on both ways. And especially true is what also Professor Lam has just mentioned is that with this discrepancies in, uh, yeah, in education backgrounds, we have to be also be more sensitive to what kind of services that these different groups of people need, where some of the activities, some of the welfare services that we provide might fit some of this uh, 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 education background people. The other uh, uh, sector, the other population might need other stuff that fit their culture, that fit their needs. And we have to be also sensitive and responsive about these issues. So what kind of activities are you thinking about? I mean, the one that I can think of, you know, uh, in, in Hong Kong, people play mahjong, but that doesn't suit everybody, right? Um, so what are, what are, can you give some examples of the different types of services that you're thinking about? Uh, uh, let me share about a, a few experiences that I have with some of my clients. Uh, say, for example, some of the clients who have a uh, uh, lower uh, education background, well, they, they, they enjoy just socializing with their friends in some of the uh, community centers, uh, doing some of the simple exercises, reading uh, newspapers, playing mahjongs. Where, whereas some of my other clients in the, in the elderly population, they would rather prefer to have uh, guided tours in museums, uh, to, in arts, uh, for more cultured experiences. Uh, whereas they deemed uh, going to, to, to the community centers as too noisy. So we have to be more sensitive to these discrepancies and then be able to deliver services to cater both uh, uh, populations. Um, you know, before uh, I came onto this program, I read an article, and this was in the Atlantic in in the, the United States. And it's uh, the, the the 
um, title of the article is How the Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Um, that, that, you know, traditionally in China, uh, families live in very large groups. You have grandma, you have aunts and uncles who, who can take over the care. Um, in Hong Kong nowadays, many of us live in essentially nuclear family. How, how does that affect this problem of loneliness, do you think? Amos Chang? Yes, uh, this has a significant impact. It's not just the, the impact of nuclear family, uh, but also uh, with, uh, with another wave of uh, emigration. Uh, a lot of older people are being left behind in Hong Kong again, uh, with, uh, with their children leaving to, to various parts of the world. That has an impact on that. So how to, to respond to this particular uh, shifts in 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 in, in, the, in the population movement is one thing, and the other thing is that nuclear families requires more uh, uh, support from the society than a, a larger family can because nuclear family requires a lot of more resources and uh, uh, and people to facilitate the functioning of not just the the, the functions of a nuclear family or, or, or economic functions but also on the psychological and and emotional support that it can provide to its members and currently i do not think that, that there are enough emphasis in uh, in, in family-related policies. Do you agree, Terry Lum? What, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Do you think emigration uh, out of Hong Kong has an impact? No, uh, yeah, definitely. But put it this way. Uh, first one is the, the, the nuclear family is not something we plan, right? But it is a product of uh, social and economic development. So it is not just in Hong Kong or in the United States, pretty much around the world. So this is number one. Uh, number two is... Um, as people become more, more mobile, um, uh, it is not only nuclear family, it is also the distance between, you know, a generation become larger and larger. So the kind of uh, social support that a family member can render to each other become uh, kind of a uh, job significantly. So having that in mind, the challenge for older people is when they have, do not have their children around, not, not even talking about, you know, a hundred uh, kilometers away, but we are talking about six or seven thousand, you know, kilometers away. Uh, so, so they need to have, um, alternative, uh, social, source of social support, right? So for loneliness, um, we found out first one is, um, this is a issue that can be, uh, handled or, 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 you know, at least, uh, uh reduced by intervention. So the type of intervention we talk about can be social prescription, um, can be, you know, uh, 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 activities organized by different, you know, uh, elderly center or by, you know, a volunteer group. So there is something we can do. And uh, we have data uh, based on, you know, uh, we collect uh, from more than 4,000 people before the COVID-19. Uh, for example, if from that group we found out the baseline um, social loneliness, uh, uh, data, we have about 21% of older people uh, significantly feeling lonely, you know, in the population. But with intervention, actually that number can reduce it to about uh, uh, 15%. So, so that is something we can do in the society. And those interventions, in fact, are not costly. So they are social prescription, can be done in, 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 in elderly centre. But the challenge is we need to do it systematically. 
in a way that make a difference in the society. Right. So, so providing more um, social services, of course, uh, would help. But, but do you do you actually um, check to see if um, you know these elderly people uh, these elderly people feel lonely, or you're just assuming they don't feel lonely? Because I'm just asking because uh, earlier uh, Dr. Chung he mm-hmm. was saying that uh, loneliness. I mean, even if mm-hmm. you're in a in a crowd full full of uh, mm-hmm. you know with a lot of people, you can still mm-hmm. feel lonely. Oh yes, yes. Actually, we we have a standard instrument developed by. UCLA, uh, you know, uh, but we validate that in Hong Kong. So it is a very easy three questions uh, 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 instrument. So we did it actually for more than 10,000 people in Hong Kong before and during the COVID-19. So our data before the COVID-19, as I said, is about 21% of older people feel lonely. Uh, you know, this, is, this was before the COVID-19. And with intervention, more social prescription, we can reduce the percentage to 15%. So we did another survey of about 5,000 people uh, at the wave five, the first wave of COVID-19. The number actually increased to 29% of older people feel loneliness. So you can see social isolation actually has a huge in- impact on loneliness. You are exactly right that loneliness doesn't mean you don't have people around you. Loneliness can, you can feel lonely when you, even you have other people around you. So loneliness and, 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 and you know whether you have people, you know, next to you are two different concepts here. You said three questions based on this UCLA questionnaire. What are the mm-hmm. questions? I don't have it exactly, you know, in front of me uh, right now, but uh, it can be easily followed on, on the web. But maybe I can provide uh, 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 more information later, but now I don't have it in front of me. Okay. All right. And uh, just, just finally, uh, Dr. Chung, I mean, what advice do you have uh, for people who do feel lonely? I mean, do they immediately, immediately go and look for, for help or what should they do? There are a few things that we can do. First, uh, of course, we, if we find ourselves to be in, in really in need, then seeking for professional assistance would be one of the helpful ways to do that. The other would be try to just reach out and talk to some of your friends or family members. You and, and just let them know about your situation, how you feel. Just try to reconnect with them. Explore with them with curiosity, uh, but with without uh, uh, judgments or, or 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 a lot of uh, expectations from them, so that you'll be able to really engage and get the most out of those interactions. All right, uh, Dr. Chung, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, clinical psychologist Dr. Amos Chung, who is also the vice president of the Hong Kong Psychological Society. Many thanks also to Terry Lum, professor in of, uh, social work and social administration at the University of Hong Kong, and also Jean Wu, the director of the Chinese University's Jockey Club Institute of Aging. It's now 9.47 on Backchat, and in a moment we'll uh, get reaction to a study that shows that only one in eight people are willing to get COVID booster jabs. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Tin, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RTHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them and I believe that they will continue to do the same.
95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. A survey carried out by the Chinese university shows that a few people want to get COVID booster jabs. This comes as COVID-19 is no longer considered a global health emergency. To comment, we're joined on the line now by Karen Grippen, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. Good morning, Professor Grippen. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, uh, before I get your reaction to the study, let's look at uh, what's been happening. The uh, World Health Organization says uh, COVID is no longer a global health emergency. Does that mean the virus is uh, no longer a threat? Um, Absolutely not. Um, I mean, legally, uh, what the WHO did last week was uh, decide that the public health emergency of international concern of COVID is no longer uh, in, in effect. Um, it didn't uh, absolutely. It absolutely doesn't mean that it thinks that COVID is no longer a threat. It absolutely doesn't mean that the WHO thinks that uh, COVID is going to go away, um, and it absolutely doesn't mean that uh, COVID is going to stop being a public health uh, concern for the foreseeable future. It so- simply means, or I say, it simply means that it no longer constitutes the definition, the legal definition of a public health emergency of international concern. And it no longer requires a globally coordinated international response, which is effectively what that declaration enabled countries in the WHO to do. Yeah, so so this finding by um, Chinese University, uh, they found that only one in eight in Hong Kong are willing to take another booster. Yet they also found that a significant number, more than half, are happy to continue to wear face masks in indoor non-medical public places. We see it on our streets. You know, mm-hmm. many people are still wearing face masks. Is is that enough? Do we need the booster? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, I think it's great to see this new data coming out uh, in this survey. Um, to be clear, like these, this this is a survey of relatively highly vaccinated people. Um, so these are people who have already received uh, the government required number of vaccines, uh, those that have been recommended by by the committees. Uh, and and at this point, there's simply just not a lot of enthusiasm for getting an, an additional booster. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a huge problem, and I also um, uh, don't think that's uh, you know what I wouldn't have expected. Um, you know, another thing to keep in mind is this: this survey was conducted about back in March, so it's already been a couple of weeks. My suspect, if we were to do that today, we would see people reporting a little bit less enthusiasm to do some of these public health measures. Uh, we see a decline in several times, but I do think one of the great things about the Hong Kong response and the way in which the Hong Kong people have responded to COVID is that we haven't uh, we haven't seen the same level of backlash against, uh, for example, continuing to wear masks. So I'm hopeful that you know some um, that we will be able to bring back. You know, people will continue to wear masks if they're sick. If people will continue to stay home if uh, they have COVID and they test and they're willing to find out. So I think you know we have. Uh, it's a good thing that we have some. Uh, continued enthusiasm to maintain some of these good practices that were developed uh, during the pandemic. Is that enough? Is I mean, is is another booster even meaningful at this point? Well, you know, I you know, I, I definitely think boosters provide some additional level of protection. Um, I also think that the vaccines that have been given are incredibly effective, and and that most people at this point 
are already really highly vaccinated and and many of us uh most of us in fact have had covid now sometimes many of us perhaps more than once so in that sense we are uh developing immunity and, and maintaining the immunity in the community um uh, without the need for these boosters and so i think it's 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 okay i don't think we fully yet understand uh what kinds of booster strategies we need um to, to, to maintain and so in the, in the meantime, I don't think it's essential. What about um, for high-risk individuals? Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. For, for, with the exception of, you know, with people who are older, so the elderly, uh, people who are immunocompromised, uh, it's clear that those groups would continue to benefit from receiving regular boosters. So those groups should uh, likely continue to, to receive those boosters. So every six months they should get another one? Well, I'll, I'll leave that to my medical colleagues to comment. That is the current recommendation by 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 the, the government uh, committees. Um, so, uh, in the absence of better information, I, I do think that that's probably a reasonable strategy. Um, of course, it would be six months after uh, your last vaccination, or whether you've had COVID. Um, so, you know, it, it is a little bit uh, up to people to interpret what that six months will mean for them. Right. And I don't know the, um, the University of Hong Kong, they have their own uh, statistics, own, own figures uh, related to COVID. Um, according to those, uh, your data, what is the situation like in Hong Kong at the moment? Yeah, so um, right now I, I would describe the overall situation as relatively stable. Um, we uh, are now a good year past the, uh, the fifth wave when COVID became... Uh, endemic in our community and, and began to spread continuously. Um, you know, I think we're in a reasonably good place. We we definitely see cases of COVID and it hasn't gone away and it continues to be there. Um, and we, we see people, you know, requiring medical medical attention for COVID, but we don't see it overwhelming the, the system in a way that we should be concerned. Uh, there's definitely been an increase in the, in the number of cases in the last couple of weeks, months, um, but that's probably to be expected given, you know, immunity does wear off a little bit over time, there's new variants in circulation, and, and people really have scaled back their use of things like masking and so on. So none of that is very surprising. Um, I think what's, what we don't see, and I think is, is worth keeping an eye on as well, is it, now we also have a lot of other respiratory uh, illnesses in circulation, influenza, uh, and so on. And so it's not just COVID that we should be concerned about, but it's it's all of those things and how all of those things are contributing to a strain on the medical system. Okay. I mean, based on the completely unscientific observation that I have of people <laughs> around me, this Arcturus um, uh, variant that's going on right now, uh, it seems that a lot of people who never had COVID are now getting it. Yeah, that could be for a number of, of reasons. You know, people are moving around a lot more than they were in the past, uh, both, you know, internationally, but also uh, within Hong Kong. We've seen the relaxation again of, of, you know, mask wearing two months ago and so on. Um, so it's not surprising. Again, you know, everybody is likely to be exposed to this at some point, And the people who haven't had it in the past are the most likely to catch it now. So, um, you know, that. It's probably uh, true that people who are catching it now are more likely to be people who haven't had it in the past. Can we can we stop being so worried about COVID if it's if if the symptoms are nothing more than a bad cold? 
Um, you know, I, I think I think we need to think about this from a public health perspective. Uh, I, I definitely don't think we need to stop worrying about COVID overall, but I definitely think where we need to focus our attention is to the people who are most vulnerable. So again, this is the elderly, and these are the people who are immunocompromised. Um, you know, for the vast majority of young, healthy people who are vaccinated, COVID is a cold and, and a, something like a cold. Um, it doesn't mean it'll be mild, but it does mean that for the most part, people are likely to get through this without major health consequences. Um, and so we should really be focusing uh, our attention now on, on those who are, are continue to be at risk for developing severe cases and requiring hospitalization from COVID. And would you say would you say that COVID is well um, not disappear, but but way less of a threat to our public health care system now? We way less burden, that, right? Yeah. Right. We definitely see that. Right. We at this point, I would say, are not doing a whole lot as a community to try to to prevent ongoing transmission. It, it's it's happening at a regular pace. We also aren't seeing you know massive efforts to to increase those boosters, uh, and yet. We're not seeing the, the public health system being specifically overwhelmed by COVID. Um, again, there's a lot of other stuff happening, and there's a lot of other stuff in circulation now um, that, that collectively is, is putting some strain, which it normally does on our healthcare system at this time of the at a different time of the year, but particular time of the year. Um, but it's not COVID per se that is the problem. We have to think a little bit more holistically about all the the infectious diseases that that pose a risk to society. Right. And when we talk about uh, booster shots for COVID, I mean, um, in the long run, do, do, you see, um, do you see COVID, uh, the booster shots becoming like another flu vaccination that uh, people have to take uh, every year, maybe, or, every, or yeah, twice I, a year? Again, I, I don't think we have fully uh, established or understood what level of protection from vaccination is, is optimal. Um, I could imagine us requiring some sort of ongoing um vaccination uh if it gets updated i'm not sure the term is necessarily a booster in that case if it were actually updating it to fit local strains i think ideally we should be looking towards sort of second generation uh covid vaccines which will allow us to uh provide uh, stronger protection against all variants of 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 COVID, of, of the coronavirus or COVID, covid um so i think that's hopeful as something that could be coming down the pipeline. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future holds. But I don't think it's unrealistic to think that we might want to do some sort of ongoing uh, uh, boosting of the population uh, over time. Right. And just finally, very, very briefly, what's the situation like in other places? Is it similar to Hong Kong? Yes, very much so. Uh, I mean, we uh, were, we've we're kind of at a delay to the rest of the world because we were able to maintain zero COVID for such a long time period. All right. Unfortunately, Professor Greffin, I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Karen Greffin, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam and producer, Raphael. I'll be back with another edition of Fact Chat tomorrow with Paul Zimmerman.